This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. This episode, we're going to bring it back to the why. This episode reminds me that any of us can become a patient in the ICU at any time. Drew and Marie Brophy join us now to share their journey through a prolonged medically induced coma in a COVID ICU. Drew and Maria, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to us? I'm Drew Brophy, and um, I was uh, intubated for COVID, and um, yeah. So, hi, I'm Maria Brophy. I'm Drew's wife. And so back in 2022, or 2021, November 2021, we both got COVID pretty good. Drew got extremely ill. I took him to the emergency room and he was whisked away and I didn't get to see him again for a couple of weeks. When he was in the, when he was admitted, they, you know, his lungs were a mess. And I think he was in the hospital for about, I want to say 10 days, maybe 12 days before it was, uh, he was very, it was encouraged to put him on ventilator and um, he had popped a hole in his lung. We, well, I'll just give the, I'll just give the, the cliff notes and then we can go into the details, but it was Thanksgiving day. He was put on the ventilator, induced coma. And it went on for four weeks, the induced coma. Um, the whole time they expected him to die. Um, yeah, two days in, they wanted to unblow, unblow me. Two, yes. Two days after being put on the ventilator, the doctor told me that he was suffering and it was a horrible way to die. And that um, he wanted, he was asking permission to turn off life support. And I said, no, um, I, even though I knew that it looked really bad, I basically had made a decision not to give up hope until after he took his last breath. That was the decision I made. And how difficult, I mean, for you're still trying to wrap your brain around, he's in the ICU, he's intubated, and now they're wanting to shift gears again. Um, I'm so glad I'm interviewing both of you because Maria, your trauma is, is very real and the stress and the, the difficulties of that situation. And then not to be able to communicate with Drew and make those decisions together. And then to be not even physically by him had to have been horrific. It was really hard. One thing that I started doing was, uh, well, immediately, once he was put on the ventilator and induced in coma, I had the nurses for six plus hours a day, put an iPad next to his head and I would talk to him and I would play music for him. And I did that every single day 
And I, I also, he was in a room with a big window. I was also, I was the crazy lady staring in the window every day. I would drive to the hospital every day. My sister-in-law would go with me. And the nurses started leaving notes in the window, just like friendly notes saying hello. They, they knew I was going to be there every day. And I, I would stand outside that window because I just couldn't stand to be uh, away from him. I couldn't stand for him to be alone in there. Finally, you know, I, I want to say it was about um, four days after he was put in a coma and on the ventilator, the doctor, I mean, they thought he was going to die any minute. And the doctor actually let me and my sister-in-law in to see him. And so we, we got to go into the COVID unit and it was like walking into a creepy dungeon. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, it felt like death in there. There was plastic everywhere. Um, oh my gosh, it was just terrible. But I was so grateful to be able to go in his room because it was the first time I was able to touch him in a couple of weeks, even though he was in a coma. And the doctor let us in for about three days in a row. But then when the doctor realized Drew wasn't going to die, he stopped letting us in. <laughs> and then uh, it wasn't too long after that, they moved him out of COVID unit because he was testing negative now. So they moved him up to the CICU. And then I was able to come in and be in there every single day. Yeah, I'd like to back up a little bit. And from the moment we arrived at the hospital, I didn't even know if I had COVID prior to that. We went to an urgent care and um, they tested me for COVID. And I, they tested my oxygen while they waited for the test to come back positive or negative. And my oxygen level was super low. It was like 70 something. And they freaked out. They thought the machine was messed up. And they said, you need to go to the hospital right now. So we went to the emergency room. And um, I, at this point, I still was not afraid. I was not worried. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be treated here at the hospital. My mindset was that, you know, they were going to have some type of something for me that would help me get better. But they were waiting for us. They, the urgent care had called ahead. And like Maria said, when she pulled up, she was still having to park the car and stuff. They opened the door and pulled me out. I didn't realize that they were going to take me away. So I didn't even get to hug her goodbye. Anything, I was pulled out and I was gone. And from that moment, I felt like a prisoner. It was pretty terrifying because I tried to go in and... You know, I've taken him to the hospital before. He's an athlete. So we've been there for many stitches over the years and all kinds of things. And never have I been locked out. And and I've never seen security guards at a hospital before. It, it was really terrifying. Yeah. And so the next thing I would like to say is that, you know, I have all the utmost respect for all the doctors and nurses they are great people. Um, the things that we're about to talk about are really about the system and how everybody was caught in this system, and including me and including them. And so this is not a dig on people per se, but the situation we all found ourselves in. Absolutely. I think COVID was this totally foreign and um, 
terrifying, overwhelming world that led to desperate decisions. And some of them were essential. Some of them were um, unfounded, but, but it, no one was trying to harm anyone. Everyone was trying so desperately to save as many lives as possible. Um, it's just hard because a lot of things that happened during COVID are still happening um, because we have misunderstood the real repercussions of those decisions. Um, and you were separated from your wife, which is now hopefully changing. Hopefully we're letting families in more often and I'm advocating always for liberal visitation. Maria should have been an essential part of the ICU team the entire time at a normal circumstances. She would have been. But what it was what was it like to be in the ICU and to be facing a ventilator? What were those discussions like? What kind of preparation did you have before being put into the coma? Well, I can just say from the moment... Uh, I was in there, I was sent for a CT scan and I was totally aware and I overheard the tech talking to the nurse, uh, uh, not the nurse, but I think, I guess it was the doctor and the nurse, but they were talking about how bad my scans were and this doesn't look good. This, these are, you know, this looks really bad. And it occurred to me, I was like, oh, they're talking about me as I'm being wheeled into the COVID unit. And the whole COVID unit was like, I can just remember there being plastic everywhere on the walls, like duct tape and like really crazy. Um, and once I entered that space, um, everybody was, you know, of course in like masks, face masks, gloves, or they're, they're totally covered. Um, so it was scary from the get go. I was like, oh, wow, this this deteriorated quick, you know, with one minute walking in um, to um, like hearing basically this doesn't look good. I don't you know, think he's going to make it type of thing from the moment I got in there. I didn't understand that my wife was not going to be allowed in. Um, I was immediately put on oxygen and I was in a, a dark room, a small room. By myself, I um, was told to lay on my stomach. Uh, nobody moved me the whole time. Nobody told me to sit up. Nobody told me to sit on my side or on my back to move. Um, I remember one nurse coming in. He was a man and said, well, why are you still laying down? You should be being moved. I remember him yelling or not yelling, but having a stern conversation with somebody like, you know, he needs to be, you know, sit up and he needs to get up. And um, it sounded like everybody was frantic. They didn't have enough help. They're short staffed. Um, not much communication with me. The doctor seemed to come in every once in a while, super early in the morning when I was foggy. Um, my mind was still clear at this point. I was listening to books. I was using my phone. And at some point, I, I started feeling better. And I can remember sitting up in my room, and there was a window where they could see in. And um, I thought it was over. And so I was keen on sitting up. It felt good to sit up. It was the first time that I, you know, I had gotten up to go to the bathroom and things like that. But 
you know, just to sit up and like, I was like, Oh wow, I feel much better. And I started breathing. I was taking big, deep breaths. I thought it just felt so good to breathe. I still had oxygen on, but I don't think it was a whole lot at that point. Um, and it just felt good to breathe. So I was taking these big, deep breaths and I thought I was expediting my healing. Like I was taking charge. Um, I can remember nurses looking at me through the window, but not coming in. And I don't know how long it passed, maybe an hour or something. And then all of a sudden a nurse came in and started poking my shoulders like this. And she ran out and then got some other people and they were all looking at me. And then they all started freaking out. And evidently my looked like I had shoulder pads on. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, prior to that, I'd been, I was texting people because I had all these texts. And I was like, they were worried about me. I'm like, no, I'm good. I should be coming home soon. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling much better. I'm like basically telling people I'm going to come home. And then I get whisked out for another CAT scan. And that's when they found out I had popped some holes in my lungs. And I guess that was the gas coming out in my shoulders. They call it popcorn. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I'd still not see my wife other than through the phone, FaceTime. Um, they immediately put me on 100% oxygen through the candela. And then they put a big blower thing on me. It was really loud. And that thing was running full blast. Shortly thereafter, the doctor, it was, it was evening, came in and said, we need to put you in a coma. And I had a discussion with him. It was hard to hear him through the blower. And he said I popped holes in my lungs and they couldn't get enough oxygen in me. That I had to go into a coma. On a ventilator. On a ventilator, intubated. And I <laughs> argued with him that everybody that goes on the ventilator usually doesn't make it. I understood, I would read up enough that this was not a, a positive thing. And um, he said, well, if you don't, if, if you don't do this, you will die. He said, you might last till tomorrow, but you'll, you're, you're going to die if we don't do this. And he said, or you might have a heart attack or stroke before that. And he said, it'll be awful. And my team will have to try to revive you because you'll probably die anyway. And it's, you don't want to die like that. It's better if we just put you in the coma. And I said, no, I said, I'm going to fight. And he was visibly um, sad about this. He, he said, okay, I'll, you know, grant your wishes. And, but I'm moving you to a room with the window so you can say goodbye to your family. And they moved me shortly thereafter to the only room with the window. And they allowed my wife and uh, my sister to come see me through the window. Um, I still wasn't scared. I thought I had it, but I stayed up all night making sure I didn't fade out trying to breathe. And I realized that I'm going to have to go into the coma. It wasn't an easy decision, but I mean, I, I couldn't stay awake forever. I felt like I was drowning. Um, I understand why people give up. It is very hard to maintain, um, this lack of oxygen. And so that morning I agreed, I talked to my wife and sister. I was able to make two phone calls, one to my son and one to my mother. And I told my wife that uh, I wasn't afraid. I got this, don't let them turn the machines off. And I watched them fade away and they gassed me. I guess it was nitrous oxide or something, I don't know. 
I put a thing over my face and they blurred out. But yeah, that was what it was like. And did you have experiences while sedated? I mean, you were four weeks, you were sedated. What yes. was that like? Um, it might be a topic for another conversation. It was, it was amazing. And, um, well, there's two things, right? So one, Drew had a, a near-death experience, and that's the amazing thing he's talking about. But then the, the, other, the other part of it is when you were coming in and out of the sedation. Yeah, so coming back is not so easy. They do not tell you, you know, that you're only supposed to be in a coma for a few days, maybe a week tops, that the drugs are killing you. Um, they don't tell you about the atrophy. Um, they don't tell you about the psychosis. They don't tell you that you're going to be trapped in your body. They don't tell you that your ability to recover from this is not very good. Um, you know, it's just like you, you need to do this um, because this is going to save your life or this is a better way to die than the alternative. So all that happened in a split second, you know, trying to make these decisions. You know, basically, you know, you do the best you can with the information you have. Um, like I said, it was a dire situation for everybody. I had deep compassion for my doctor when he had that discussion with me. I wondered how many people he had to tell that to and how many people never woke up. But I did. And I'm a witness for all those families who loved ones had to face this. Waking up was was awful. It was, you're totally paralyzed. You're locked in your body. My mind was perfect. And I didn't understand that I was paralyzed. I thought I was being restrained. I thought it due to the time loss and the experience I had in coma, I felt like I'd been gone a very, very long time, like lifetimes. I thought I came back to somewhere else. I thought I was in some type of lab that was doing experiments on me. Um, like I said, everybody was in hazmat suits with face masks. You can't understand anything anybody's saying. I can't move. They're poking you and prodding you and flapping you around like a dead fish. They're talking. I can hear them. I can understand what they're saying. I heard awful things about me, you know, that they can't believe that I was alive and I probably won't last much longer. Or, you know, this poor guy, and you're just sitting there like, man, how did I end up here? I can remember when I saw my wife, I realized I was in the right place, but I couldn't talk to her. They, I can remember a nurse who came in, a male nurse, and he was mad that I wasn't sitting up. I mean, he was, we got to move this guy. We got to get him up. We got it, you know, and they had me in a room with a lift, but it took a lot of people to do this. I can remember him putting me in that lift. As soon as I sat up, they don't tell you that you get sick because you get the spin. So as soon as they would sit me up, I couldn't control this, but they'd sit me up, the room would spin. You were having a vestibular response or vestibular dysfunction. Yeah, and so it was... I couldn't fight back, but it, you mean, I would get so sick. All I wanted to do was be still. And they would put me in this lift to try to sit me in a chair. And since I was, you know, at the risk of uh, having it go in my lungs, they didn't want that. 
but I can remember throwing up a lot during one of these times and you're choking to death. And um, like I said, you can't control it. If you, you know, what people don't realize is on the ventilator, you, you, there's no up and down. It just blows up. You feel like you're dead because there's no rhythm. Your heart panics. It thinks you're suffocating. So it's racing. It's like the whole time I was like running a marathon. My you heart was your heart racing. And you couldn't stop it. There was a period of days where his heart rate was 160 day after day. And solid. I was doing everything I could to get that heart rate down by playing soft music. And so there's a lot that happens to the heart when you are supine and immobile. I mean, if, even without COVID, if I were to go in and be sedated for four weeks, my heart rate would be significantly significantly higher than my baseline. I, I'd have consistent tachycardia. Now you had COVID on top of that. You had a lot of things going on. So, but your heart deconditions so quickly while you're um, not being challenged or not, not really having a difference in um, fluid shifts and things like that while you're just laying there. So that makes sense. But it's interesting to hear that you could feel it. Yes. While uh, you were sedated, you could feel. Yeah. And they, they would be talking like we got to get his heart rate down. And so you knew the drugs were coming. Um, they were trying to wean me off the, all the drugs, the Pima Barbital and the Percet. Percet and God, there's so many drugs. And propofol and all the stuff. And they would, I, it's of course, see them putting it into my IV. And every time they did that, I was like, oh man, they're turning me off. And I didn't want to be turned off. And I guess they were doing that to calm the heart rate. Um, they didn't want um, me to have anxiety. I can always remember nurses coming into me and like, you got to calm down. And I'm like, it's not me. It's not, I'm fine in here. That's, you know, the other it, thing they don't. There, we believe, like we are taught to believe that the more you give those medications, the more you were treating anxiety. But you're saying yeah. that you didn't necessarily feel anxiety. Your body was just presenting with vital signs that are that are like when patients are having anxiety yes but when they gave you more of those meds did you feel the sense of calm and peace that we assume or hope patients feel no it was a panic it was that oh no they're turning me off and I, every time they did it i thought that i was gonna die again and when i would come out of it Every time I'd be like, okay, I'm alive. And I didn't want to be turned off. I, every time they turned me off, I thought, you know, I was going to, I was going to die. I, I know that just by whoever entered the room, whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day, um, just by which nurse was at my side, um, whether they were going to take care of things or how the day was going to go. Um, and I was terrified of certain nurses. I knew that I was going to be neglected or that they were just going to turn me off for the day. So they didn't have to think about me. Other nurses were fantastic. You know, they told me I was going to be okay. They were like, you know, I'm here. Get some angels. I'll be right back. Um, you feel very alone, especially at night. At night is the worst. Um, the other thing they don't tell you about is the suction that they have to do to you on the ventilator. Um, it's... It's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but they put the wire down 
the tube and you can feel it in your lungs. The wire was super long. They probably had to suction me about every 15 to 20 minutes. And even um, when you were sedated, you could feel it. Oh yeah, you can you can feel it. You know, when you're sedated, when you're sedated, you're in this limbo land um, where nothing makes sense. I was always prepared of what was happening. Um, but, you know, at one point I thought I was melting into the bed, melting into the floor. Um, I would think that they they had moved me and they put me behind a stairwell. Um, at one point I thought I was on fire. And what they had done is put these things on my legs that stimulate your legs. And, um, but it was triggering something. I thought I was on fire. I thought I was burning. Oh, they were doing electrical stimulation to your muscles. Yeah. Like EMG. And, um, but in my psychosis, I thought I was on fire. And that was when you weren't communicating yet, right? Yeah. I couldn't tell anybody. Um, yeah, I mean, just surviving all that was just the, you know, I, I really haven't talked about this part of it much. Um, just the brutality of, of what you have to endure. And like I said, I'm super grateful to the doctors and nurses who saved me. But at the same time, it's lucky they didn't kill me. Um, many things could have gone wrong um, and did go wrong. Um, things that maybe could have been different. Um, just the sheer fact that they were so um, understaffed um, and, you know, maybe, maybe not that I never needed to be in a coma if I would have been, you know, standing and moving more. It's almost like I was looked at, like triaged, like, oh, this guy's too far gone. We're not going to worry about him. That's the way it felt to me. And it just got worse. And then they were like, okay, it's time to put him in the, on a coma, in a coma. And, you know, that's the best way for him to die. Um, I think they were surprised when I woke up. I thought, I think that they knew that my body had been destroyed um, and they didn't expect me to recover from that either. He lost a hundred pounds. And in 28 days. So he was put on the ventilator on Thanksgiving day. And it was a couple of days before Christmas that he started to turn around a little bit. Two years, he started to two years today, December 21st. Yeah, two years today. Wow. And his doctor, and I remember it was like the day before Christmas Eve, his doctor said to me, it's a Christmas miracle. And it really was. Um, since Drew's come home, we've had a couple of the doctors visit us, believe it or not. Few of the nurses, there's always tears in the eyes, and they, every single one of them has told told us, "I knew you were gonna die." Like you're you, because every patient we had that had that severity didn't make it, but you know, and they're so happy. Oh, to they some to the trauma from COVID is that you lost so many patients, and they. We're working so hard to keep you alive. And it's really hard to work that rigorously, expecting and anticipating poor outcomes and knowing that patients are languishing. Um, I think that's one of the main causes of the burnout and the moral injury and the loss of so many clinicians 
I mean, if you look statistically, COVID obviously has high rates of mortality, especially with the severity that you had. But then to have delirium on top of it, doubled your risk of dying in the hospital. And then to have ice required weakness, at least increased your risks by 30% of dying. And those risks still carry out one year plus after discharge. So the fact that you've survived COVID, delirium, ice required weakness, um, two years post discharge, especially with the severity that you had is astounding. And then to see you now. So how much did you weigh going into the hospital? How much did you weigh at your lowest leaving the hospital? And how much do you weigh now? So I weighed probably 205 to 210 um, going into the hospital. What was the lowest? 105? You got down to 105 after six weeks. Uh, how tall are you? Of uh, 5'11". So he looked like, <laughs> I remember one day I looked at him. I was in the hospital all day, every day. I stopped going to work. And that was my life. And he just kept losing weight. But you know how you, you know, I was focusing on all these other things, like getting him alternative treatments, high dose vitamin C, other things that I was doing, trying to do different than what they do with other COVID patients so that he would make it, that I missed how much weight he was losing. And then one day I looked at him and I said, oh my God, his cheekbones were, he had no skin on his face. And I had been to a concentration camp in Germany, uh, Dachau, many years ago, and there were photos there of survivors. And he looked like one of those men that had lost all their weight. And that's what he looked like to me. And it was bones. He was bones and his, his hair was falling out. And I realized what are they feeding him? And it was just, you know, something I hadn't thought of. And so I looked at the, the bag of food that was being fed and I read the ingredients and I got to tell you, I was horrified. It wasn't even food. It was chemicals. And, and he was having a problem with throwing up. So at some point they had taken him down to like 600 calories a day because he, his stomach couldn't handle it. Well, what happens is when you're on fentanyl and you're not moving, your bowels can stop. So you can get obstructions or especially ileus that make it so that you're not in tall, you're not able to pass those volumes. And so that makes sense why he lost so much. Also, COVID makes people hypermetabolic, especially obese patients, but I'm sure in general too, that they, they metabolize things faster, because, probably because their immune system is working so hard. So I think we underfed a lot of COVID patients because we may have waited too late to start feeds. And even we didn't understand how much they actually needed. We kind of calculated these things for their normal me me resting metabolic rate, not their COVID rate, which was oftentimes much quicker. And then when you're not utilizing your muscles, you don't get, you can't rebuild. And, and just even just being bedridden, you don't rebuild and maintain the muscle mass that you have. Um, so all those factors combined set up this terrible storm. I'm trying to imagine you at 5'11", weighing 105 pounds. Yeah, it's, I didn't understand why I was paralyzed. I couldn't feel my body. Um, I can remember the first time I did, I was able to move my hand first and I can remember reaching down to grab my femur 
and I could put my fingers around it. And I just was like, oh, my God, what did they do to me? And um, I remember being able to feel the skin underneath, like all the skin was just hanging off of it like a drape. And there was no muscle. It was just skin. And it just did not compute to me what had happened. Like, I didn't understand how long I'd been in that coma. Like I said, it felt like it was forever. And then when I came back, I thought, well, maybe it wasn't that long. But then once I was able to feel my bone and my skin, I was just like, oh my gosh, have I been in the coma for years? Like I just, it just, nothing made sense. And nobody had thought to tell me. I didn't think, like, I was so busy solving all the, I felt like I was putting together a Rubik's Cube every day. I was doing so much research. I had hired doctors outside of the hospital to guide me. And actually nobody would take my money, but I had doctors advising me. Um, I, I mean, I was doing everything I could to keep, keep him to, to find solutions that I didn't think that he didn't really know what was going on until he could finally write. He had that one hand that could move. And it was about a week after he came out of the heavy sedation where he finally could write words. And one of the first things he wrote was, why am I paralyzed? And I said, oh my gosh, I didn't even think to explain to him what had happened. So then I realized, you know, I had to explain to him that he would learn how to move his body again, that he was going to recover, that he was not paralyzed, that it was temporary. Um, and then he wrote, what day is it? And I was afraid to answer the question because I had heard about a guy who had been on a ventilator from COVID. He was a friend of a friend. And when his brother told him he had been out for four weeks or something like that, it scared him so bad he had like almost had a heart attack and they had to put him back on the ventilator. Um, so I remembered that and I very gently told him, okay, I'm going to tell you, but I don't want you to freak out. At, at, one, at one point I was convinced that they were trying to kill me. <laughs> if you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And that was the delirium. Like I said, like I understood when they were turning me off. And to me, that was like, okay, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to um, 
put me out. And even one of my friends who was a respiratory therapist was there. I thought he, I thought they were all in on it. You accused him on paper. You're using me as a test dummy. It was it was the worst day of I I psychosis because after he wrote that to Paul and Paul had seen it all before, so it didn't bother him. But I was pretty upset that you were accusing everybody and, you know, you were out of your mind. I I can remember writing to the nurse. Why are you trying to murder me? Do you remember what you did next? He reached with his one hand that could move and he ripped the tube. This was when he was trached. He ripped the tube out of his trach. (sighs) And thank God, Paul, the respiratory therapist, was right there when it happened. Paul was very calm, very calmly put it back in. I I was very frustrated that I I literally thought that they were trying to kill me and nobody was taking me seriously. That, you know, I was like, you got to get me out of here. Drew, how has... those memories, those beliefs, the stress when you sincerely believed that, how has that impacted you the last two years? It makes me never want to go to a hospital again. Pretty terrifying. Um, I'm going to do everything I can not to go ever go to a hospital again. Um, like I said, there's good people, but the system is broken. It's absolutely broken. This is just the, the tip of the spear. I spent four and a half months in that hospital and it only got worse. I spent 70 days on that ventilator after being intubated. So 70 days after getting your trach. Total, total. No, that's true. No, you spent, you were on the the ventilator. Ventilator until February or something. Yeah, it was a it was a total of 70 days that you were on the ventilator. I want to invite the listeners to imagine you describe your femur as being just a bone, right? Your leg, you could, you could feel your femur, the muscle was gone. That also happened to your diaphragm and to your respiratory muscles, your core, everything that you needed to be able to independently breathe and do the work of breathing. I think it's easy to see that and be like, well, his lungs were sick. He had COVID. But at that point, you probably had pretty minimal ventilator settings. It was the loss of muscle mass and function that led you to have the extra 50 days, 40 days, 60, I mean, however many days on the ventilator as you had to rebuild those muscles required for breathing. Yeah, they they told me I would never get off the ventilator that I was going to live in a nursing home. They they told me to, like, he, he'll be okay. He will live a good life in a nursing home. And I said, no, no, you won't. But it was a, it was a very scary thought. We actually had a... Uh, a healer go in, a, a woman who is a good friend of ours, but this is what she does for a living. She she works with people um, with their muscles and their ligaments, and she, she works with athletes mostly, and she's always helped Drew with all his athletic injuries. So she was going in the hospital regularly, and her main thing was she was helping with his muscles, but she, the main thing, she was trying to wake up his diaphragm. And so she did a lot of work on his diaphragm because it was paralyzed. Yeah, people don't understand that. Like I said, there's no up and down. It's just up. It just blows air into you and blows you up. And so it doesn't feel like you're breathing. It doesn't feel like you're alive. Um, And, you know, being trached, 
it feels like there's a dog collar around you, like you're choking to death because it's on there. Um, it You're not given any water. I didn't have water for, I don't even know how long, through my mouth. Your mouth feels like a dry, weird thing. All those muscles required for swallowing safely have also yeah. atrophied. Yeah. Your body's catabolized those muscles. It's, your, your mouth is just so dry. And then your nose is cut off, you know, so you're not breathing through your nose at all. It's going through your throat. So it's very obvious that there's something wrong. And my nose filled up with blood and stuff. And when it came time to try to beat the ventilator, I had a few angel nurses that convinced the doctor to try to wean me off the ventilator. The respiratory therapist. And I heard them discussing it. The doctor believed I would never come off the ventilator. It's been too long. I heard them having discussions. I heard many times I heard awful things. Um, and even just, you know, nurse was being off and arriving back, you know, at work and saying, oh, wow, this guy's still here. Like they were surprised. That seemed pretty consistent. I did have doctor or not doctors, nurses that were fighting over having me for the day that they really wanted me. Um, yeah. At the first hospital, the nurses would fight yeah. over who got his room like in the last couple of weeks that he was there because they saw that he was this miracle man that was possibly going to survive this. And they wanted to be a part of it. And one of them was that nurse Frank who yeah. got him out of bed that day. And I'll tell you, that was the day that the the day Frank got Drew out of bed and Drew was still intubated, so it was a very tricky I maneuver. I, was, I thought I was flying. He, it took like five people to do it safely. I was terrified, but they talked me into it. First, I said no. And Frank said, if you don't get this man out of this bed, he's never going to walk again. I was like, shit but you guys might kill him. I was so scared, but I did it. I, yeah. I reluctantly agreed. And that was the day I saw something shift in his mind where he went from dying to living. And it was like a couple of days later when the doctor said, it's a Christmas miracle. Yeah. And it was Frank getting you out of that bed. And to note on that, you know, the difference between the nurses, it was very clear that, you know, some people were just at work going through the motions and they didn't want to look at you. Um, it's almost like you were, you know, in a dog kennel or something and they were throwing your food at you or something. And then there was other nurses that were engaged completely. Um, during this whole thing, I had nurses cry on the side of my bed, overwhelmed by all the patients they had. Um, I once had a nurse forget about me for a while and she came back and she was crying on my bed. I'm so sorry. And I had my ventilator thing come off a few times and I just sat there and thought like, wow, I beat all this stuff and now this malfunction is going to kill me and nobody's going to come in time. And then somebody would finally come running in and put the thing together and I'd be okay. The worst thing was... I saw a lot of people die or heard a lot of people dying. It's another thing they don't tell you about. 
Um, especially at night. I think I only saw two people die during the day. The rest all happened at night, maybe a dozen or more. They don't tell you that you can hear people calling out, people crying. You hear their machines go off. You hear the code blue and you feel so bad for them. You're praying for them, even when you're in your own problem. And then you hear it all stop and you know they died. I saw them wheel people out. You know, I would sit there and wonder, I'm like, how many people have died in this room? How many people have died in this bed? You know, you put all this stuff together and the brutality of, of it all. It's amazing that you come out of it saying, I could feel everything. My numb, my toes and my fingers were numb and my tongue was numb. But everything else I could feel, I could feel it every time they put a pick line in me. I could feel it every time they adjusted the trait and that big open wound in your throat. The thing around my neck was always too tight. It felt like I was being strangled to death. I could feel every time they did a arterial blood draw, which were done daily, if not more than once a day. They don't tell you that that needle goes in sideways and they go to try to find that artery. It hits nerves. It's like being electrocuted and you can't do anything about it. You can't even tell them to stop. They don't tell you that you don't get any sleep because they're doing stuff to you all night long. I don't know why they do this, but that's what they do. And then everything happens in the morning, right after shift change. It's like all of a sudden a zillion things happen and the doctor comes in, he can't understand what he's saying. And there's people all around you and then they, everybody disappears. Shift change was awful because you were knew for that hour around just shift change, nothing was going to happen. And if you had a problem, it was going to be a bigger problem than you probably needed to be. Everybody was hurrying to get out. And I want to do their report. And the new nurse was not in a hurry to come see you. And depending on who I saw as the new nurse, like I said, I knew whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day. And very often I would see people that I was terrified of. I was like, oh my gosh, the last time I had this nurse, I thought I was going to die. I remember once when you could write, you told me about a nurse that was really rough with you and it was a night nurse. And I was, I felt like I was Drew's protector and I made sure that he never got that nurse again. Yeah. Um, I remember their faces. I remember their names. I remember all of it. There were so many good ones, though. Um, so many angels. I just call them angels. Yeah. Then, and what was it that made you feel so safe with them? They looked at you. They talked to you. Other ones didn't. They just come and put something in your IV and you fade away. They were always too busy or they'd be panicked about something, you know, Usually, um, usually panicked about the heart rate. Um, I can remember one nurse basically mad at me because my heart rate was going through the roof. And she was saying to me, like, you got to calm down or, you know, we're going to have to do CPR on you if you, you know, your heart rate, you have a heart attack. And I'm sitting there in my mind. I'm like, I'm fine. This is this. You know, it's not my fault. They don't realize that so much of that is because the stroke volume has declined over those last four weeks of being sedated and immobile. They don't see you after that month um, different than when you first come in. You, you have certain expectations for patients for what should be normal or why things are happening. But your body is 
you've lost a hundred pounds and just like the rest of your muscles atrophied, so did your heart. So it goes faster to keep up or to compensate. And that is a common thing to give sedation to control that heart rate, but controlling vitals with sedation is not appropriate. You'll never find that in a textbook that doesn't treat the cause of it. Well, the other problem was is the doctors were not available usually at night. And I can remember the cardiologist, she was a woman and she talked to me. I guess there was something about the the reading that there was like a false bump in, in front of my uh, heartbeat that was making the rate seem higher than it was. It was reading like a little bump. And she explained it to me very well. And I was able to give her a thumbs up that I understood. And then a new nurse would come in that was not, you know, prepared and would be freaking out about this, you know, reading. And in my mind, I knew that it was the wrong reading. The cardiologist just explained it to me. And I'm like, how did the cardiologist explain it to her or to to me and not to her? And it seemed like with every shift change, your whole program was starting over. And nobody knew what was going on with you. They didn't even know why I was there. And with that, it sounds like you were were in a coma for four months and you weren't able to write your first note until a week later. So for five weeks, you were not able to really communicate to the outside world. Yeah. How did that impact you? Well, you feel like a prisoner, number one. Um, you, You don't understand why things happen the way they did. It's very frustrating. Um, you feel like you're going to die at any second. Um, you're totally um, dependent upon the system that you're witnessing fail. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, like here I am locked in my body and I'm paying attention and kind of see what's going on. How come every other person that comes in this room has no idea what's going on? Um, it, it made me furious. Um, you know, I was just, I don't like to get angry about it because there again, I, I have a lot of gratitude for the fact that they saved me, but I got to admit that I'm amazed they didn't kill me. Um, so it's like a double-edged sword. Um, and I want people to know that I'm grateful for these people. They are enduring something just as bad as what I went through. The, there were A bomb was handed to them and they were trying to diffuse it. But, you know, it's very frustrating when there's a problem and they can't get a hold of a doctor. Something as simple as constipation. You know, I would feel that pain. You know, you feel like all of a sudden there's, you know, watermelon coming out of you. And, you know, those drugs paralyze your body. and you, It won't come out and they don't do anything about it. And they're like, we can't get a hold of a doctor. So you're just going to suffer. That happened to me so many times that, you know, like it was just brutal, like. So, yeah. like, I, you know, I don't want to complain too much because there again, I'm alive. But these simple things that would be an it should be an easy fix, um, just weren't. Or the awareness of what's happening from the patient's perspective um, is important. That's why I feel like I'm a good witness to this type of ordeal. Um, I haven't started talking about it due to the fact that I don't want to offend those that help me. And I don't want to appear ungrateful. I am. All I want to do is to shed light on the fact that there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, 
most people did not survive what I survived. So I'm here to tell you what it was like all the way through. And it was absolutely brutal. I'm amazed that the psychologist said that my mind was fine. He said, I don't know how you endured all that without anger, number one, or immense fear. Um, but I, I attribute that to the time in the coma and what I saw in the coma. On your death. On your death. That put me at ease with everything. Well, also, I think it really helps to have family around. We, yes. we, my, our son and I didn't let to, uh, we didn't let a day go by that he didn't have visitors the entire time. And, um, you know, the entire, every day. We never left him alone during visiting hours. There was always somebody there. It was usually me, our son Dylan, and then we had friends that would come, or you know, an other family, and we were all doing physical therapy on him. Yeah, the hospital was the first hospital was not able to do any physical therapy on me. Um, Frank was able to get me out of bed two or three times. That was it. Um, they had one time a physical therapist um, came, but I was too debilitated for them to do anything and they never came back. I didn't start any physical therapy until the second hospital sometime in February. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like February 1st. So you had already sat I mean, you were traked and you just sat there for basically another month or so. They didn't roll me. Every once in a while, I would get a nurse that was adamant about rolling me around. My, I had no butt. I was sitting on bones. Um, as my body came back online, I was able to meet, move my toes and my hands. I couldn't move my left hand because there was so much stuff plugged into me. And the ventilator tubing and everything was over. So my left arm was more atrophied than my right just because I was doing everything with my right and you couldn't lift ventilator tubing up. You were that weak. I just want that that is significant that that was yeah. weighing you down. Because for most of us, that's not heavy stuff, but that's how weak you were. But it was also just the, you know, the pain from the different things plugged into me and the pain of the trach itself, you know, in my throat. Um, if that thing moved at all, I mean, you imagine having a big hole in your throat. Um, you did not want that thing moving because it, I mean, felt like, you know, a giant piece of tubing in your throat, an open wound. And, and tracheostomies became so common during COVID. And it was like the more, the sooner, the better, um, which obviously the sooner you do a trach, the sooner most patients get to wake up and mobilize. So their outcomes were better. I don't think it's so much to do with the trach as people think it does, right? It has more to do with being awake and mobile. But because it became so common, I think people assumed that they were benign or comfortable or totally fine. They didn't really affect patients, but you're saying it was uncomfortable. It was painful. Um, how do you feel about your scar? Has like two years later, how do, has how has the trach affected you? Um, my voice has changed from it being on my voice box. Um, sometimes it hurts. Um, I don't like looking at it because it reminds me of what had happened. Um, 
one of the hardest parts was when I finally beat the ventilator, you have to do three days without it. And I had the team of respiratory therapists that believed I could do it. Um, the doctors did not. And it wasn't easy. It was, you know, it was super hard, but I did it. And the doctor was convinced that I was going to have to be put back on the ventilator. So they left the trait in with me breathing through a candela through my nose, but my nose was clogged with stuff. So I couldn't breathe through it. And I would put the candela in my mouth. I was trying to tell them that I can't breathe and they would not clean up my nose. I don't know why they gave me the saline solution, but they would not let me keep it to try to loosen the stuff in my nose. I'd spend all night trying to, with my hand barely moving, trying to get this stuff out of my nose. And when I finally did a thing of blood came out of my nose about that long, it was like a, a snake. I don't know what it was, um, but my nose had been blocked off for so long. My whole nasal cavity was full of stuff. And I can remember doing that and nobody helped me do it. I had one nostril at one, I finally got one nostril open. And this is why I'm off the ventilator on the, on the, still have the trach. I forget how much oxygen I was on. It was quite a bit. I think it was like six and a half liters. Um, but, you know, I, my nose got too clogged. I would have to put the thing in my mouth. And um, I don't know how long it was. They left me like that. Um, I think it was about a week. I breathed through the, the, thing in my mouth through the little tube of the trach. I didn't know what a trach looked like, so I had no idea. I didn't think it was that big, um, but I remember the day the doctor woke, came in early in the morning, one morning, and he just looked at me like, oh my gosh, you know, like I was awake and I was, like my diaphragm was messed up, so I was having to do this weird jerk movement to breathe. And I was just so focused on just doing this thing. And I did that for days. And he came in one morning and it looked like I'd, I'd probably been up all night making sure I breathe. And he just went, oh, my gosh, like, what am I doing? And he goes, we got to get that trick out right now. And he assembled the whole team. They came in and within 10 minutes, they were around me and he pulled that thing out. Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. Like, he pulled that thing out. And I could instantly talk. I had a raspy voice. I was like, oh, I, said, I think I said some cuss words. I was like, you know, why'd you leave that thing in there for so long? But I instantly went, oh, I took a breath. Oh my God, it was amazing. It was like I was being held underwater for four and a half months. And I saw that trach. It looked disgusting. And it, I saw a little tube. It was like a little straw. I couldn't fathom how in the world I was breathing through that little straw for so long. And that's the day I started getting better. Really good. I could start doing physical. I couldn't do physical therapy before that. Because it was so hard I, to breathe. Yeah. And then I started trying to sit up by myself. Um, I started moving into a wheelchair. Um, I began being able to do the wheelchair myself. Um, I was a double assist patient. So I wasn't qualifying for the real physical therapy. They got me on the 
parallel bars, double assists. I could take a step, but I couldn't put on weight on my body. The physical therapy place got to vote on whether to take me. That was the third facility he went to. And they took a vote. All the administrators voted no. All the therapists voted yes. Hmm. One by one vote. And uh, yeah, it was hell getting my body back, learning to walk and all that. But and I did you it. kept such a rigorous schedule. Even when you went home, you did so much rehab. I followed you on Instagram over that time. And I just remember seeing you came home and I just thought, one, what a miracle. And two, long road ahead. And now I see you surfing again. Yeah. That is just the power of movement, of muscles, of physical therapy, occupational therapy. It's amazing testimonial. Yeah. And the power of the mind. Yeah, it's all mind. I mean, you you got to have a strong mind to deal with all this stuff. You have to have a, a loving family. Um, you have to have some angels in there. You have to have some lucky breaks. <clears throat> um, I did not think it was going to be possible, but I was not giving up. Um, I still almost don't believe it. It doesn't make sense that you can come back from zero. But the body... Not remotes, be able to even take your own breath to now surfing and you're back to doing your incredible artwork and living your full life. Yes. That is really astounding and inspiring. And it truly is a miracle. Very few people get to come back like that. Yeah. And I want people to know that, you know, they got to have a strong mind now before something bad happens to them. They need to have a strong family now and uh, our support system. support system, you know, that's why you're good to people. That's why you you strive to do good in this world. I feel like everything that ever I ever did good came back to me during this time. Yeah. Now I can tell and, you have a whole community that was cheering for you. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, now that I look back on it all, I mean, it is everything had to come together to make this possible. And like I said, it doesn't seem like it could be possible, but it is. Nobody can do the work for you. It sucks. Um, you, If you can't breathe, you can't walk. And if you can't walk, you can't get better. So it was like this, this weird thing where, and I couldn't gain weight because I couldn't eat. You know, I desperately wanted to eat something. I couldn't chew. My muscles were atrophied. I couldn't swallow. You know, every time you took a bite of something, you thought you were going to choke to death. Um, you know, the fear of falling. Huh. The, um, yeah, I couldn't lift my arm up. I couldn't hold a coffee cup. I wanted a cup of coffee so bad and I, I couldn't lift it. I'm trying to, you know, yeah, that's, I think that's stuff that people rarely think about. You know, we think that patients are sleeping, that we're sparing them trauma and harm and that this will help them survive. And sometimes obviously medically induced comas are unavoidable in some cases, but the sooner we stop them, the more likely this kind of severity of not being able to hold a coffee cup, not even able to chew, we really can prevent that in most patients and ICU survivors. And you sharing this with us gives us so much better insight and empathy for our patients. There are so many wonderful clinicians out there that will hear this and apply this to the next patients they take care of. Um, 
your insight is helping us shift the culture, the perspective, even the jokes <laughs> that are made yeah. in and out of the ICU. And I'm so grateful for everything that you've shared. Um, any last thoughts for the IC community? Just thank you so much for helping all the people. Um, your actions make a difference. Even just your kindness, a smile, a lock eyes, a touch of the hand. I had a nurse hold my hand all night once, and I might not have made it without that. You know, there's so many things, but, you know, the work that they're doing is, um, I had no idea the trauma they were having to go through on a daily basis. And it's not easy, um, but it makes a difference. Even if the person passes, at least they don't pass in fear. Yeah. They know that they are loved. And they find that out as soon as they cross over anyway. But in that moment, it is fearful. You know? And I, I have one last thing to say. I mean, one thing that I, I feel like we did that really helped Drew do the impossible, which was to get off the oxygen after we got him home, get him walking again and get him surfing again. We surrounded him with therapists that believed that he could get off the oxygen because that was another thing we were told he would be on it for the rest of his life. And what I learned through this is with every step of him doing the impossible, it he was surrounded by some people who believed it was possible. And with that belief, we took the action steps towards it. And with the action steps, we made it happen. Yeah. I feel like Frank, that one nurse in the ICU was the one to set that precedence. Yeah. This guy is going to survive and we're yeah. going to get him up out of the bed because he's going to survive. And you followed and you sought more Franks throughout your journey. And so yeah. the impact of these clinicians to change the total trajectory of your hospitalization and the rest of your life is amazing to me. So thank you so much for being an example to the entire IC community and IC survivors. And I look forward to continuing to watch your journey and learning from the Brophies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.